Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, as we bring to you yet another guest speaker from the bi-monthly meetings of the Whitechapel Society 1888. And what you are about to hear is the April 2019 talk by Joe Viger Mungovan about Joseph Merrick, the Elephant Man. Joe is one of the world's most foremost experts on Joseph Merrick's life and is the author of the excellent book, Joseph, The Life, Times, and Places of the Elephant Man. And so without further ado, let's turn it over to Tony Power and the Crutched Friar in London, introducing Joe Viger Mungovan. Welcome, everybody, to the April 2019 meeting of the Whitechapel Society. Um, and we're delighted that Joanne Viger Mongovin is here tonight to, uh, to talk to us about Joseph Merrick, also known as the Elephant Man. And it's great to see so many of you here tonight in our brand new home, the Crutched Friars. And it's also great that thousands of you have downloaded the excellent Rippercast podcast and are joining us through, through that. So we hope you enjoy what you hear. And if you want to find out more about us, go to the whitechapelsociety.com website. Just to give you a bit of a geography of where we actually are, for those of you listening in, we have Allgate Pump, uh, a short walk to the north of us, which leads on to Allgate High Street and Whitechapel, down to where the Royal London Hospital was, which is particularly prescient for tonight's talk. Uh, and to the south of us, due south, we have the Tower of London, Tower Bridge. Throwing its shadow over us is the church that Samuel Pepys, the famous diarist, used to use, St. Olaf's Church, just down the road there. History surrounds us, ladies and gentlemen. So tonight we men- we welcome Joanne, and Joanne is actually from Joseph Merrick's hometown. Anybody know Joseph Merrick's hometown? I want to have a guess. Oh, everybody knows. What a knowledgeable audience. Lester is correct. He's from Lester. And when she was researching her family history, she discovered that she was actually related to a gentleman called Tom Norman. And Tom Norman was a showman who actually exhibited um, Joseph Merrick in Whitechapel High Street here just across in the Royal London Hospital where Dr. Joseph Treves eventually found him. So um, she did some more research on that, and that led her to write this book, which I'm holding in front of me, which is called Joseph, The Life, Times, and Places of the Elephant Man, which you can get. Unfortunately, they're all sold out tonight, but you can get them by going to the Mango Books website. So ladies and gentlemen, without any further ado, please welcome Joanne... Viger Mongovin. Hello. Um, I'll first just do a quick thing about my book. When I wrote about Joseph, I wanted to learn more about his life in Leicester because he spent 22 years of his life there. So there's more... There's more to Joseph in Leicester than actually London itself. So I did in-depth research into the Merrick family um, and also the Potterton family. Um, Spoke to many of Joseph's relatives on both sides, um, which then also, um, as what's been said before, led me to research more about Tom Norman, which made me find out more about my family as we are actually related. So to start, if I started my book from the very beginning... I would like to start you to the very beginning. Joseph's family can be traced back to at least 1690 to the Whitechapel and Spitalfields area of London from addresses such as Grey Eagle Street, Whitechapel High Street and the Hollywell Mount district of Shoreditch. 
Now, Joseph's great-grandfather, Barnabas, arrived in Leicester in 1837 with his third wife, Sarah Rockley. His first wife had passed away. Um, I've no idea what happened to his second wife. There's no records. Um, but he did leave five children in the East End of London. And one of them, a Charles Barnes, found this quite difficult. And in 1839, age 16, was transported to Tasmania for stealing pork. Now, Sarah and Barnabas's eldest son, Joseph Rockley, married here at St. Michael's and All Angels Parish Church in Thermiston to Mary Jane Potterton, the village where she grew up. Now, Mary Jane was already eight weeks pregnant when they got married. Um, back then, it, as you probably all know, it was incredibly shameful. Um, a lot of women ended up on the streets, or they ended up in the workhouses, or even committed suicide. But I would probably think at eight weeks, she didn't even know. Now, when the, family, when the two got married, they settled here on Lee Street in Leicester. Um, it was the same street where Joseph Rockley had actually grown up as a youth and where his mother still lived. Six months into the marriage, there was the annual May Fair of 1862 in Humberston Gate in the town. Now, it is said in many books and in the 1980s film and also in plays, it was this fair where Mary Jane um, was frightened by an elephant which caused her son's condition. Now, we know this as maternal impression, which is when, the, um, when an outside stimulus affects the unborn fetus. We know that not to be true. And there is actually no evidence of a menagerie at the 1862 fair. Now, the area of Lee Street was demolished in the pre-World War II slum clearance of the 1920s and 1930s and was replaced by a U.S. Army camp. And then, of course, Leicester does what it always does best and put up a parking lot. And we all know what Leicester liked to bury under parking lots, and 50 Lee Street was no exception. This is no, no ordinary um, NCP multi-story car park. It was actually one of the largest ones in the country, and just below we had a Tesco built, which was the first Tesco outside London and was opened by Sid James. So if you get a pub quiz, you now know that the next Tesco was in Leicester. When Joseph was four years old, in 1866, the family moved to Upper Brunswick Street, a two-up, two-down terraced house, where Mary Jane gave birth to Joseph's younger brother, William Arthur, and then a year later gave birth to Joseph's little sister, Marion Eliza. Now, poor Mary Marion, in the census records and in her death certificate, it notes her as crippled and deformed from birth. No one quite knows what she actually suffered from, on, she, but she did die of spinal seizures, which is actually linked to multiple cirrhosis. Now, the family moved again in 1869, and they moved to Burstall Street. They moved to Burstall Street. Now, this is Brunswick Street, which is the two up, two down. And Burstall Street, the houses were a little bit plusher. They had three bedrooms, a separate kitchen and parlour, a cellar, hard and soft running water, and gas fittings. Now, Joseph's father, Joseph Rockley, as well as working in many um, factories and warehouses, also owned a haberdashery shop and an oil lamp dealership 
here at 37 Russell Square. This, I've got my little point up. This is the actual shop that the Merricks used as their haberdashery business. And later on in years, they actually owned this house next door. Now, this area also became famous about 20 years later after the Merricks left, when a George Joseph Smith moved in, who was the infamous bigamist and murderer of the brides in the bath in 1915. The area, of course, has been knocked down, as Lester liked to redevelop and they put up this beautiful 1970s architecture. And it is now known as the St. Matthew's Estate. But you can still sort of see where the, the shop was. Now, Mary Jane, as well as working in the shop, she was also a Sunday school teacher at Archdeacon Lane Baptist Church, where the family worshipped. And this is Archdeacon Lane. Now, this church is also linked to another famous son, the travel entrepreneur Thomas Cook. Thomas Cook actually worshipped at this church at exactly the same time as the Merricks, so they probably either knew each other or knew of each other. And Thomas, Thomas Cook's daughter Annie also <coughs> taught Sunday school alongside Mary Jane Merrick, which may be where Joseph actually got his education. Now, when Joseph was five years old, he was walking with a stick. But I don't believe he would have actually stood out amongst his peers. There was a terrible disease going through the country at the time called rickets, which caused bent and twisted limbs. There was also another terrible disease that we all know of, and that's tuberculosis, which affects the lungs. But there's also another strain of the tuberculosis, which affects the blood and affects the bones and joints. And this is called osteoarticular tuberculosis. And this was actually rife in Leicester at the time, and it actually claimed three of Joseph's cousins. Now, the family moved again between 1872 and 1873 to Cranbourne Street. Once again, it's your typical rows and rows of terraced houses, and as previously has been demolished and is now the St. Mark's estate in the Belgrave area of Leicester. In the May of that year, it was noted as a particularly cold month. The polar winds were sweeping through the country and there was average temperatures of about 12 degrees Celsius. On the 29th of May, 1873, Mary Jane Merrick died aged 36 of bronchial pneumonia. And she's buried here at Welford Road Cemetery in Leicester. She's buried here with her son, William Arthur, who died in only four years of scarlet fever. And he was buried on Christmas Day in 1870. Now, the Potterton family are quite... They were quite interesting when I was researching them. I won't say doomed, but very interesting... As you know, Joseph's mother died aged 36 of bronchial pneumonia. Her sister died aged 38 of a stroke. A brother died of tumours of the spleen. Another brother was involved in a terrible train crash in Hendon, and he died in Leicesterborough Asylum. Joseph had a cousin who was paralysed from birth, and he died in the Borough Asylum. We know, obviously, that his sister was crippled and deformed from birth. And Joseph's grandfather committed suicide by slitting his own throat. Very interesting family. 
Now, 15 months after Mary Jane died, Joseph Rockley remarried and Emma Wood until. Emma was a young widow with two young children of her own who were about the same age as Joseph and Marion. Joseph left school aged 13 and went to work in a cigar factory. But this didn't last long. And when he was 15, he had to give the job up because by then, his wrist measured 15 inches and around one finger, it measured five inches. So Joseph's father got him a license to hawk goods around Leicester, probably things that could fit onto a tray from the haberdashery shop, such as gloves, laces, matches, all sorts of bits and pieces. Now Joseph has said that if he didn't make enough money, he would be beaten and not get enough food or even no food at all. Now to us, that maybe sound like child abuse, but back then they really did believe in sp uh, spare the rod and spoil the child. And this is evident in a story that I, I actually found about a young John Higgett who actually worked with Joseph in the same factory and who was the same age as Joseph. Now, he died aged 15, but he didn't actually die from neglect. He actually died from pleurisy. But when they did the inquest into his death, they found that he had no socks on, no stockings and no undergarments, even though it was middle winter and freezing cold. And the boss of the cigar factory, Bernard Rothschild, actually remembers seeing John Higgett crying sometimes before he left for work. And when asking him what was the matter, he said that if he didn't earn enough money at the cigar factory, he would be beaten or not given enough food. And the treatment of the Merrick family didn't actually go unnoticed with the people that were living around Russell Square at the time. A Drusilla Wood, who was a Rudd, who was a neighbour of the Merricks, was outside one evening talking to her neighbours about the treatment of how Joseph Rockley treated his children. Joseph Rockley stormed out and threatened to bash her head in if she said anything else. He then struck her two violent blows and damaged her collarbone. And Joseph moved in with his uncle Charles, a hairdresser at 144 Churchgate in Leicester. This is his uncle Charles. Now this is where, if you don't, you don't know Leicester, but this is Lower Churchgate. This area has actually been demolished, as usual, but the church still stands. And direct, directly opposite the church door would have been 144 Churchgate. Now, Joseph lived here for about two years, and during that time, his father sold the lamp and oil dealership and also the haberdashery shop. And he moved again to the more plusher area of the Belgrave in Leicester with, a, with his ever-increasing family, which included his wife, Emma, his daughter, Marion, from the first marriage, his two stepdaughters, and three further daughters that he'd had with Emma. His uncle Charles's family was also growing. He had had more children, and his aged mother, Sarah, was also living with him as well. So we don't know why, but Joseph decided that on the 29th of December, 1879, he would check himself into the Leicester Union Workhouse. The night Joseph arrived was the annual prize giving and there was about 1,200 residents and an extra 200 guests, including the Lord Mayor. Now, as it was just after Christmas, the, the chapels and the, the rooms were all still adorned with Christmas decorations. 
But Joseph probably didn't see any of that. He was first, he first entered the workhouse into the receiving room. He stayed there for two days. He was probably given a very tepid bath and a change of clothing until the next board of guardians meeting that admitted him into the workhouse itself. And he was admitted as what they call a class one. And a class one is for able-bodied males that needed little exercise and exertion. And this also told us the type of food Joseph would have eaten. So for breakfast, it would have been about six ounces of bread and one and a half pints of gruel. His lunch would have been one and a half pints of soup. And supper would have been six ounces of bread and two ounces of cheese. Now the class one also told us the type of work Joseph would have done. And this would have been ranging from open picking to stone grinding to also bone crushing. And it wasn't unheard of for the residents of the workhouse who were bone crushing to eat the putrid remains of the flesh that was still hanging off the bones. Because obviously they were so hungry. Now once again there's not much left of the workhouse. These, this is all that's left. This is the original gates that we still have and the retaining wall. This is an electricity substation which wasn't there then. And behind there is Moat Community College. Now two years into Joseph's stay at the workhouse, he had an operation which he had a growth grown out of his mouth which was actually pushing his lips back and hindering his speech. Now this operation was probably done at the workhouse infirmary by Dr. Clement Bryan an excellent surgeon that worked there for about 30 years. But he was severely criticised for his lack of record-keeping, and those records that he did keep, those records he did make, don't survive today. Now, back in the early 1800s, there was no anaesthetic. Um, it was said a good surgeon could remove a leg in two and a half minutes, which was obviously good for the surgeon, but not good for the patient. But by the time Joseph had his operation, he was probably given, probably given chloroform which would have rendered him unconscious. And pain relief was probably laudanum and opium. Now, the infirmary wards... Now, the workhouse infirmary wards had one toilet and one bath. They were heated by furnaces on the ground floor that went up through flues through the walls. The beds were ironed with straw mattresses. And there was one towel given to each ward weekly. So that's one towel per ward not one towel per person, and they were given two combs per ward as well. Now, also about two years into Joseph's stay, the Prince and Princess of Wales visited Leicester to open Abbey Park. Abbey Park is a recreational ground in Leicester, built on the Leicester, Leicester Abbey. Now, there was plenty of um, feasting in Leicester and plenty of entertainment, and most people probably would have thought that the workhouse residents missed out, but they didn't. The children went on parade from the workhouse down to the temperance hall and had a feast there. They were given an orange and a medal as a gift. And the workhouse residents, they actually feasted on um, roast beef and plum pudding. They were given presents such as snuff, ale and tobacco. There was also the regimental band that actually played on the workhouse grounds. And there was also fireworks. Now, Joseph was in the workhouse for about four years, and by then I can imagine he was getting probably a bit sick of all the, all the discipline and the routine. So he was probably looking at a way to escape, and he knew that his physical appearance drew interest. So he contacted the local music hall proprietor, 
Sam Tor. Now, Sam Tor was well known in London for all his musical venues, but he moved to Leicester where his father was a tailor. Now, he's tend to dealt in musical variety acts and not freak shows. And he owned two businesses in Leicester, and they are the Green Man and the Gaiety Palace of Writers. Now, strangely enough, the Green Man still survives today. It's derelict and was once used, I think it was last used, as a nightclub. The Gaiety Palace of Writers doesn't exist anymore. But if you look closely, you can still see the ghostly steps that went up to the various levels. Now, I don't actually think Joseph was exhibited in Leicester at all. If he was exhibited here, it would have been much too close to home. Where these two buildings were were on Wharf Street, which was directly next to Lee Street, where Joseph was born. According to the pamphlets that were given out, um, Joseph probably had his debut at the Beehive Public House in Nottingham with John Ellis. So in 1884, these type of shows and exhibitions had reached their heyday. There was the famous Goose Fair in Nottingham, with plenty of ghost shows and exhibitions, Lord, Lord George Sanger and P.T. Barnum and Bostock and Wounwells were household names. But it wouldn't have took long for Joseph to exhaust the Midland circuit. So he travelled to London with George Hitchcock to meet the very charismatic, very handsome, very lovely Tom Norman. Now, it's Tom Norman that is actually portrayed as Bites in the David Lynch 1980s film, The Elephant Man as a drunken, nasty bully that beat Joseph. Well, it's probably, that's a lot further than the truth. In fact, two years before Tom met Joseph, he signed a pledge for the Church of England Temperance Society. He also signed a pledge for the Travellers National Temperance Society. Um, although he has stated that later on he did have to have a drink because the type of work he did, you really needed to sit there with a pint in your hand. That's because of the sort of people that he associated with. I'm not saying that Tom Norman was a saint, because he wasn't. He had plenty of convictions. He spent time in Pentonville. In fact, is one of his children on their birth certificate says, um, place of birth in a caravan on Wasteland opposite Pentonville. And his mother-in-law also carried a knife in her pocket for the time when she met Tom. But um, that's, that's a very good story, but that hopefully is um, another book we hope. So I'll leave Tom Norman there. Well, when Tom Norman first met Joseph, he looked at him and thought, oh my God, I can't use you. But he said that he looked into Joseph's eyes and saw pleading and suffering. So he took Joseph's hand and shook it and said, well, Mr. Merrick, I will call you Joseph if I may. Tom Norman had a shop here and moved Joseph in to 123 Whitechapel Road. Now, these sort of shows had to be very portable, where you could assemble them and disassemble them. And there was oil paintings on the wall, on the walls. The writing was written with soap. There was old enamel advertisements on the floor and sawdust. It had a gas ring with, lined with brick for cooking and for heating. There was two metal beds um, with a curtain across for privacy. And it was one morning when Tom woke up, the curtain was slightly ajar. And he noticed that Joseph was sitting up, sleeping. So when Joseph woke up, he asked him why he actually slept sitting up. And Joseph said that if he actually lied down, he would break, wake up with a broken neck. 
So Tom Norman enlisted a friend called Joe Wintle that made a dairy maid's yoke for him to support his neck. And that was lined with horse hair and leather for comfort. But Joseph didn't find it very comfortable, so I don't think it was used very often. Now, the show began with much anticipation and banter because it was Tom's job to actually tell the tale. So Tom would be begin with this. The elephant man is not here to frighten you, but to enlighten you. But I would like to stress that ladies in a delicate health are advised not to attend. And then Tom would go into the spiel about how Joseph's mother had been frightened by an elephant and that had caused his son's condition. But this was Tom's job. He had to sell Joseph to the public. But as well as selling Joseph to the public, they also sold pamphlets. These pamphlets told you a little bit about Joseph's life and they sold for one and a half pence. And all the money from these pamphlets went straight to Joseph. None of it actually went to Tom himself. Now, by the mid-19th century, these shows were major institutions. There was no legislation preventing human exhibits, and medical professionals visited freak shows on a regular basis to examine deformed bodies. An eminent surgeon called Dr. Bland Sutton used to visit the East End on many occasions to see dwarfs, fat women and giants. And the first time Bland Sutton saw Joseph in the show, he reported a poor fellow with a deformed head, face and limbs. His skin is thick and pendulous and it hung in folds and resembled that of a hide of an elephant. Now it was a Dr. Reginald Tuckett after visiting Tom Norman's show at 123 Whitechapel Road that he asked if a Dr. Treves would come and see Joseph. This is Dr. Frederick Treves. Treves was born in Dorchester in 1853 and trained as a doctor in London. He was also known for scouring the streets for exhibitions. And there was an article in Gynoscope in 1898 which reported the scientific obsession with these sideshow acts. And a senior physician was actually noted to visit P.T. Barnum and inspect the freaks on a regular basis. Now, the morning they met, well, they were actually, morning Tom met Treves, they actually went to a coffee house when Joseph was getting breakfast. So, Frederick Treves said to Tom, are you Tom the showman? And Tom answered, yes, I am, unfortunately. Now, Tom always said, unfortunately, because he thought it'd break the ice, because then somebody would say... Why, unfortunately, and he'd say, oh, because I thought I was somebody else. But this seemed to go over Treves' head, so Tom carried on getting breakfast, and he gave Frederick Treves and Joseph 15 minutes. Now, after that initial meeting, a doctor took it, came back, and asked if Joseph could go over to the London hospital to meet Treves over there. Joseph agreed, thinking it would actually do him no harm. But after about the third or fourth time, Joseph didn't want to go back. He said he didn't mind being shown under the showman's stewardship because he was getting paid for it. But over at the London hospital, he felt like cattle in a cattle market. So Dr. Treves tried one more time to see if Joseph would come over because he had a private show, and Joseph refused. And a week later, the show was actually shut down. Now, Joseph then was sent to live with an elderly couple in Whitechapel, and he had £50 in his pocket. He stayed with this elderly couple until he went in the spring season of 1885 to stay with Sam Roper. Sam Roper had a travelling circus. 
And it was Sam Roper that actually designed Joseph's famous veil and hat and his cloak. And this was to stop the youths of the local, uh, local towns actually harassing Joseph. Now, there was one incident in Northampton in Marketplace where a group of kids actually pulled off Joseph's cloak. And a Harry Blount Bramley, who's one of Sam Roper's boxing midgets, actually came to Joseph's rescue and, by all accounts, knocked the boy out cold. Now, as this was a travelling circus, Joseph stayed in a caravan. And this is a Burton, which is well-known, and a lot of showmen actually use these. They were rather big. They had a stove and two bedrooms and also an area to keep your belongings. Now, because, obviously, Joseph's hygiene problem, although it had two beds, I would probably suspect that he stayed in the caravan by himself. But he did get visitors, and Harry Bramley, another one of the boxing midgets, used to sit on the steps with Joseph in the evening and talk about things you would never think someone like Joseph would talk about. And he also said Joseph was very religious. Now, he spent the spring season with Sam Roper, which probably just lasted a couple of months. And by the April and May of 1885, local newspaper adverts were appearing in the papers. And these were actually off, those were actually advertising Joseph's show for sale and saying that he actually preferred the continent. Now, no one really knows what happened in the continent. The story is that he was abandoned by his manager in Ostend and all his money was stolen. These shows were flourishing in the continent. Lord George Sanger and P.T. Barnum, they were well established. And in Paris in 1889, they had the World's Fair, where they actually exhibited 400 indigenous people, which attracted about 28 million spectators. But the show didn't obviously last very long for Joseph. And the following year, he was actually back in London and found himself at the doors of the London Hospital. We don't really know how he got there. And Francis Cargom actually writes in the newspaper, with great difficulty, he succeeded somehow or another in getting to the doors of the London Hospital. Now, whatever took place there, the only possessions Joseph turned up in were his clothes. He entered the receiving room, which was bare, had rows of benches, rooms for males and females where the surgeons worked. And it was there he possibly met up again with Dr. Frederick Treves. And whatever conversation passed between them, on the 24th of June, 1886, Joseph was given food and shelter in the isolation ward of the attic rooms of the London Hospital. There were several letters in the newspapers asking for help to keep Joseph there. And in December 1886, through the generosity and compassion of the public, Joseph was given permanent quarters at Bedstead Square. Trees would visit on a daily basis, and he encouraged many of the house surgeons to do the same. A Dr. Wilfred Granville often sat talking to Joseph, and he reports that he remembers Joseph talking freely about how he would look in a bottle of alcohol. So whether Joseph actually knew his fate, nobody knows. Um, maybe that's why his skeleton is still on display today, because he agreed to be um, kept for medical purposes. We don't know. But he also made friends with William Taylor, who was the engineer that built his rooms and his chair and his bed. And he also made friends with William's son, Charles, 
who would come and visit him and play some private organ recitals. He also got visitors from Nurse Emma Island and her volunteer nurses. And Tom Norman tried to visit once because he'd received a note from a porter at the London hospital who said that Joseph had been heard to ask when he could go back and see Mr. Norman. So Tom tried to get in, but unfortunately he was refused entry. In 1887, while he was still in the hospital, the Prince and Princess of Wales visited the London to open two buildings, the nurses' home and the medical college, and this set seed to a lifelong friendship. The Prince and Princess of Wales often sent gifts and cards and photographs, and the princess, princess visited on a regular basis. He also had benefactors who he never met. There was a, a Madge Kendall who arranged for Joseph to go to his first pantomime. He went to see Puss in Boots at Jury Lane Theatre. He travelled there in a private carriage and sat in a private box with three ward nurses at the front and then Joseph and Dr. Treve sat in the back. He also met a young widow called Lila Manchurin. It was said that when she met him, she shook his hand and smiled. And from then onwards, his confidence increased, and he would also meet his, his guests with a shake of a hand and a smile. And it is a letter that Joseph wrote to Miss Turin, which actually still survives today. And it is one of two examples of Joseph's handwriting that we still have. The actual letter is now at the Leicestershire Records Office, and I think the one in the London Hospital Museum is now a replica. Now, Madge also taught jo Joseph and encouraged him to do arts and crafts. And he made for her a cardboard model of Mainz Cathedral in Germany. She also arranged holidays for Joseph. And between 1887 and 1889, he stayed at the workers' cottages in the Falsley Hall estate in Northamptonshire under the invitation of Lady Louisa Knightley. He travelled up on the North Western Railways in a private second-class carriage to the village of Badbury in Northamptonshire, which is known as one of the most picturesque villages in the country. And it is this cottage here, Red Hill Farm in Chipping Warden, where he met a young Walter Steele. Walter Steele would help Joseph post his letters to Dr. Treves, and how he described Joseph's enchanting and passionate interpretations of his adventures and the bewilderment of strange birds and how he'd met a fierce dog. Walter also said that Joseph took pleasure in the natural world and read poetry on a regular basis. Joseph also visited Dr. Treves's house, which is here. Now, this was quite a fantasy house for Joseph that he'd read about in his favourite Jane Austen books and his favourite book being Emma. Now, Joseph's last holiday was in 1889, and he returned back to London, to, to a cold and foggy London. Now, it had been ten years since Joseph had left his uncle Charles's house, and six years since he had left Sam Tor. Joseph had travelled the country, gone to London, met Tom Norman, <coughs> travelled the continent, and he'd also met royalty, been to the theatre, and had many holidays. But now his health was failing, and he was suffering from bronchitis and a weak heart. 
The growth he'd had removed at the Leicester Union Workhouse was growing back, and he started to attend Mass at the local chapel at the hospital. He was confirmed into the Church of England by the Suffragan Bishop of the East End, Dr William Walsham Howe. On the 6th of April 1890, which is today's date, was actually Easter Sunday, Joseph took Mass, mass twice. On the 10th of April, he took his last walk in, in the evening around the grounds of the London Hospital, which he did quite often. On the 11th of April, Nurse Emma Island came to visit him, and he was in normal health. At 1.30, a ward maid came across and brought Joseph's lunch. She left it for him to eat at his leisure. At about 3.30, the, a surgeon came to visit Joseph, a Dr Sidney Hodges, who, when opening the door, saw Joseph was lying across his bed and realised that he was dead. So he called for Dr Ash, a senior physician. Now, when Joseph died, his, his father was still alive and living in Leicester. There was many reports of Joseph's death in all the newspapers, including the, the Daily Leicester Chronicle. But it was his uncle Charles that travelled to London to identify his nephew's body. Once after the inquest, the body was handed over to Dr. Treves, who was the licensed autonomist. His flesh was removed, and by all accounts, there was a private service in an unknown cemetery somewhere in the East End to bury Joseph's flesh. His bones were bleached twice, and his tissue, some, some of his tissues were actually preserved, but they were destroyed in World War II. Now, there isn't much left of Joseph Merrick, unfortunately. We still can see his famous veil and hat. There's the church that he made for Madge Kendall. That was where the original letter was, which I think now is probably a, a replica because we've got it in Leicester. And this is a replica of Joseph's skeleton. So I would like to end my talk in the words of Tom Norman. So ladies and gentlemen, I would like to introduce you to Joseph Merrick, the Elephant Man. Before doing so, I ask you please to prepare yourselves to brace yourselves, up to witness one who is probably the most remarkable human being ever to draw the breath of life. Joanne has, uh, jo has very kindly agreed to take questions, thank you. Um, so can you put your hand up if you have a question that you want to ask? And if I can ask you just to wait until the microphone gets to you, because remember, there are people listening in online, and they won't be able to hear you if you haven't got a microphone. So um, if you have a question, put your hand up. I will come around and speak to you, and we'll go from, from there. Yep, first question over here. Joanna, we've heard, obviously, a lot about um, uh, Joseph Merrick, but what about your ancestor? Um, what happened to him after he actually... Uh, exhibited Joseph. Where did he go from there? He carried on um, displaying novelties, different types of acts. In the um, early 1900s, he became an auctioneer and started auctioning for the showman's fraternity. Um, he auctioned a lot of goods for P.T. Barnum and for Lord George Sanger. After he finished as an auctioneer, he carried on travelling in the fairgrounds up until his death in 1930. And I think even about a month before he died, he had a show all ready and planned. But then he died of throat cancer 
and is um is one of his younger sons, Tom Norman. He carried on with the name. Great. Okay, another question here. Great talk, Joe. Thanks for that. Thank you. My question is, how old was uh, Joseph Merrick when he died? He was twenty-seven. Wow, young age. Okay. Oh, great. Thanks, Bill. There we go. I seem to remember that um, Tom Norman was called the Silver King. He was. Can you explain that one? Yes, he had um, a silver chain and watch chain attached to him. And it was, I think he was at the World's Fair um, Agricultural Hall, I think it was. And he was doing a show and P.T. Barnum was in the audience. And afterwards they started talking and P.T. Barnum looked at his silver chain and said, oh, Silver King, eh? And then he just carried on with that nickname. Any other questions? Yeah, one at the front here. Yeah, wondering, uh, people that knew um, uh, Joseph Merrick during his lifetime, what did they say about what he was actually like? I mean, for example, was he a tormented man uh, when, he, when he was on the stage? Did he, was he a bit of a showman? Did he enjoy it? Or no, was he sad, they, happy? What was he like? I've not read any reports about what he was like during his shows and how he was exhibited. But they said he was a very gentle man, very quiet, very learned, um, read a lot. They said that he had a lovely soul. And that's basically what every single person that knew Joseph used to say about him. And I think it was Lady Louisa Knightley who used to go and visit him in the workers' cottages at her Falsley Hall estate that said, oh, Joseph, he had such lovely brown eyes. And that's what she said about him. <laughs> i got a couple of questions. Is the um, place he stayed in at the London Hospital, is it still there? No, it's gone. That last photograph I put up, um, was with these rooms all bricked up. Um, I think that was taken, um, I think in the early 2010. Um, somebody that I know that took the photograph and has let me use it. I went back down there in about 2016 and it's all gone, completely gone. So it's only quite recently then? Yeah. Um, the other thing, oh yeah. Um, I thought. Um, there might, this might be a myth or something that he, when he came back from Europe, that he uh, turned up at somewhere like Liverpool Street Station and someone found a card with Treves's name on or something like that. That's what um, Doctor Treves wrote in his book that he had this. He travelled from um, Antwerp to Harwich, went from Harwich to Liverpool Street Station, was hounded by a um, group of youths and people very similar to the film, huddled in the corner, handed, the police came, he handed Dr. Treves' card to the police. They called Dr. Treves, he came and rescued him. But that's what Treves wrote um, quite a few years after he met Joseph, very near to his own death. There's no other report of how Joseph got back from the continent. And as I said, in the letter that Francis Cargon wrote to the press, he actually said, um, he turned up somehow or another to the doors of the London Hospital. So there was no mention of Treves at all. So I think, I'm not saying it is, but that may have been Treves' own imagination of his heroic rescue of Joseph Merrick. And of course then that was portrayed in the film as well. So nobody really knows. I put, um, an, I put something in my book where I think Joseph maybe went from Calais to Dover um, Ostend's a lot nearer to Calais, and because of the connection with Thomas Cook, he may have seen adverts or for Thomas Cook's tours, which he was advertising at the time, going from Dover to Calais, Calais to Paris, and then back again. So he may have seen a picture of Thomas Cook um, and gravitated to Calais, 
maybe hoping that this gentleman would help him get back across to England and maybe back to Leicester. We don't know. Okay, do we have any other questions? Oh, one at the front. Okay. Is there any memorial or plaques anywhere showing where he lived or anything? No, not really. Is there any plans to have any? I hope so. Um, in Leicester, there's a brown plaque which was uh, made by the Joseph Carey Merrick, friends of Joseph Carey Merrick, and that was on the side of the old Gaiety Theatre. When that was demolished, um, that got lost, and it turned up at Moat Community College, which is the site of the old workhouse. But that's in a locked courtyard in the college that no public can see. Even the school kids didn't know it was there when I visited them last summer. There is a conference centre on the college called Joseph Merrick Conference Centre. The only thing, if you walk around Lee Street, there are, well, in Leicester we have blue boards that show different parts of our history. And if you go to Lee Street, there's a big blue board that shows the history of um, Lee Circle, the big NCP car park. And it talks about various things like the BT building. It has a tiny little bit, it said, and Joseph Merritt lived here on Lee Street. The rest of it talks about Tesco and Sid James. So, no, there's, there's nothing. I am hoping, I'm working with a friend of mine, to maybe get a statue of Joseph in Leicester. The council at the moment have refused or said, well, you know, it might be frightening. If we did have it, it'd have to be locked away. The sculpture, Sean Hedges Quinn, who's done a lot of, lot of sculptures around the country, he did one of Alice Hawkins for us. He's agreed to do it if we can get funding, which would cost about £80,000. They've just commissioned a statue of Daniel Lambert, and I can't see what the difference is between Daniel Lambert and Joseph Merrick. So I'm hoping that you know, once the mini-series of Joseph has come out from the BBC, it might show a little bit more interest and the council might say, mm, yeah, this is a moneymaker, we might do this. He was, he was from Leicester and he was the fattest man, supposedly the fattest man in the world, weighed about 52 stone. And he also exhibited himself as a freak in Piccadilly in the 1700s. But he was born in Leicester and um, he's famous for being... That. So and Sue. No, he just opened Tesco. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Excellent talk, Joe. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, what came first for you? Were you uh, looking into your own family tree and discovered Tom Norman, which then led to an interest in uh, Joseph Merrick, or was it the other way around? It was the other way around. It had been interested in Joseph because obviously he's from Leicester. I like Victorian Leicester and I do all my own family, family research. It wasn't until I started looking into Tom Norman and realised that his name was actually Thomas Noakes and he was from East Sussex. And I thought, oh, I've got a great-great-grandmother called Elizabeth Noakes from East Sussex. So I sort of looked into family trees and matched it up and spoke to some of his family and then found out that we were fifth cousins. So, yeah, it came second. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Are there any other questions, or are we okay to wrap up? We have one more question. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, again, I, some, you might not know this, but the photographs you showed of the uh, museum at the hospital, mm. and you're saying, obviously, the, it's been, um, a lot of it's been knocked down. I was quite surprised when I came back up here a few months ago to see that the hospital was all boarded up mm. and it was going to be going. Um, do you know what's happened to the actual museum at all? The, the, museum, the artifacts in it? The museum's still there. All the artefacts then, instead, but the letters back at our records office now. Oh, yeah, you have a, one last question. Yeah, okay. Before the book was published and Bernard Pomerantz's play, which appears to be, quite frankly, a lot of 
it isn't rubbish, it's a very good play, but it has nothing to do with the truth, mm. particularly the way Ross treated the Elephant Man. But before the film, and indeed the, the book, The True History of the, the Elephant Man, most people in London, I would think, hadn't even heard of the Elephant Man. Was that also the case in Leicester? Yeah. Um, you can probably guarantee if you walked through Leicester now and said, where was Joseph Merritt born? They would say London. Not many wow. know he's from Leicester. Was Joseph ever romantically involved with anyone in his lifetime? I don't think so, no. <laughs> okay, well, that's fantastic. Thanks a lot, Joe. It's a really interesting talk. Thank well you. done. Ladies and gentlemen, Joanna Vigra-Mongovin. And that was Joe Viger-Mungovin at the April 2019 meeting of the Whitechapel Society. We would like to thank Joe, Steve Ratty, and the entire committee of the Whitechapel Society for making the release of this talk possible. For more information on the Whitechapel Society, please visit their website, whitechapelsociety.com, where you'll find out how to become a member, get information about their future meetings, purchase books, and subscribe to the Whitechapel Society Journal. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find over 160 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations, all about Jack the Ripper and Victorian crime, society, and history. If you have any comments or questions about our podcasts, feel free to find us on the Casebook message boards, or on Twitter and Facebook, by searching for RipperCast. I would like to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.